Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. And if you are joining us for the first time, we are currently going through the book of Revelation. And we're in chapter 7, and the message this morning is sealed and delivered. In chapter 6, and hopefully you're at least trying to keep a track of what's going on, because it it can get kind of confusing. But in chapter 6, last week, we saw the opening of the seven seals started, the beginning of the tribulation period. Now, only six seals have been opened so far. And these six seals showed the four great catastrophes that are coming on the earth. Again, led, again, shown us to us by the four horsemen, which are just the beginning of God's judgments. The fifth seal shows us the huge multitude that were killed during the great tribulation period in chapter six, verse nine. In the sixth seal, the last seal that was open when we left off last week, introduced to uh, introduced some of the signs of the catastrophes that are still to come on the godless rejecting Christ rejecting world during the tribulation period. And during this period, the church is never mentioned by name. And that's because John is recording things on earth. And at this particular time, the church is not on earth. John was told to write the things he had seen back in chapter 1, verse 19. And he saw the vision of the glorified Christ in chapter 1. Then he was to write about the things which are in chapter 1, verse 19. He was in, uh, he was in the church period, and we still are in the church period today. And that's covered in chapters 2 through 3. And since the church is still in the world <clears throat> this morning... We're in the period of the things which are. So the church was the subject of chapters two and three. Okay, where Jesus spoke to the seven churches. But now here in chapter seven, there's no talking to the church. And again, because the church is not here on earth. We saw in chapters four and five that the church was in heaven. That's where the church will go when it's raptured. So the subject has changed here in chapter seven. And we're now going to talk about things other than the church. We've been introduced to a book with seven seals and the seals are being opened. Six seals, as I said, have been opened thus far, starting back in chapter six. The four horsemen introduced the great tribulation period and the seven seals give an overall picture of that seven year period. The last of the seals bears down now on the last half that is a three and a half years of the tribulation period. Now, at this point, a fourth of the population of the earth has been destroyed. We saw that in chapter six. They've been destroyed in judgment and destroyed in death. And anybody that reads the book of Revelation can't help but get the idea. It is going to be very hard to make it through this period, especially for those who turn to God accept Christ and live for him during this time. The question is, will believers be able to live for him during this period? John is now going to give us another principle that he'll follow because he knows that you and I are going to have trouble with the revelation. So he's made it uh, very simple for us to follow. He introduces series of sevens. But the way he deals with them is the important thing for us to see. A plan is followed from the breaking of the seals to the bowls of wrath. Now, between the sixth and seventh seal, 
that's where we are this morning in, in our study in the book of Revelation chapter 7. We're between the 6th and the 7th seal. There seems to be this break of what we would call unrelated matter. But it's instructive matter. It explains the action and answers certain questions. In their terror, remember back in chapter 6, those people trying to hide from the terrible presence of God, the Father, and from the Lamb. These people were crying out, but in vain. In verse six, uh, chapter 6, 17, they were crying out, the great day of His wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And the, the, the inference is nobody. This is what chapter 7 will do for us this morning. This principle of an explanatory break will be true for the seven trumpets, the seven performers or persons, and of the seven bowls of wrath. And you'll see that John is following this principle all the way through this particular section of Revelation so that we don't lose our way, so that we don't get confused. We now need to deal with a question that any person would probably ask at this point. What about people that turn to God and get saved during this time, this time of wrath during the tribulation period? Well, chapter seven here introduces two groups of people who will survive the wrath of God's judgment. First are those described in verses one through eight, and they are the Jewish evangelists, the hundred and forty four thousand who will be preserved on earth. They will survive God's wrath. His thorough destruction involving extensive loss of life released by the seal, uh, the trumpet, and the bold judgments. God will also protect them from the efforts of the Antichrist and his henchmen to wipe out believers in the true living God. So having survived the wars, the famine, the unprecedented, uh, pres unprecedented natural disasters, disease, widespread unrestrained sinfulness, and savage persecution of the tribulation, they will enter the millennial kingdom alive. The second group of, uh, to escape divine fury are those that we'll cover here in verses 9 through 17. The Gentiles. Again, Gentiles, anybody that's not a Jew. The Gentiles who will be martyred and will be ushered into the joyful rest of heaven where they will be preserved. So after the horrific events of the sixth seal and before the seventh seal, which is open when we get to chapter 8, we have chapter 7. The Holy Spirit gives us this chapter as an intermission or kind of a break for the reader to put it all together, kind of catch his breath before we move on. It's also a reminder that in the midst of his wrath, God will, have, will show his mercy. Again, the tribulation period is, is God's wrath, God's judgment poured out on those who, who, who did not believe in Jesus Christ. But even in that judgment, God's mercy will be seen. So these two visions contrast the preparedness of believers who will be delivered from the earth with the panic and devastation of the unbelievers who won't survive that wrath. Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit, the restrainer, is removed from the earth in 2 Thessalonians 2.7. He's taken the church to present it to Christ. And since you can't have any turn to, turning to God without the work of the Holy Spirit, will anybody get saved without the work of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost to perform a specific ministry of calling out a body of believers in the church, which is referred to as the body of Christ. When the church is removed from the earth, that special ministry of the Holy Spirit will be over. 
And one of his ministries in this particular period has been that of holding back evil. It was absolutely necessary that he, the Holy Spirit, was a restrainer to make it possible for the gospel to break through a Satan-controlled and Satan-blinded world. How could the word be spread unless the Holy Spirit held back evil? Now think of that. Just think of the forces today, right now, the forces of evil that are at work right now against getting the word of God out. We see organizations, we see legislature, we see, we see all kinds of people, anti-God, trying to suppress, trying to do away with, with the word of God this morning. They don't want prayer in public schools. They don't want them in government. They don't want them here. They don't want, they don't want it taught. They don't want the Bible anywhere around. They're just doing all that they can. So, again, we can see the, the forces of evil right now trying to suppress and do away with the word of God. Can you imagine when the church is gone and there are no restrictions, no restraints at all because the Holy Spirit has removed the church and Satan will have full reign upon this earth? So how are people then going to get saved during the Great Tribulation if the Holy Spirit won't be restraining evil? The Great Tribulation is going to be the devil's time of great celebration. It will be his last hurrah, if you will. And that's the day that he, Satan, is going to be free to do whatever he wants. He will have no restrictions. We'll see why God is going to allow this. Because it's a time of God's judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. So again, does anybody get saved during the Great Tribulation? Well, there will be more people saved during the Great Tribulation than in any other seven-year period in the history of the world. And chapter 7 is going to tell us how that's going to take place. The Holy Spirit is in the world after the church is removed, just like he was in the world before Pentecost or at the, even you know, before Pentecost. When you read the Old Testament, you see the Holy Spirit working in the hearts and the lives of men and women. Multitudes came to God, but he wasn't restraining evil in the world. And he wasn't baptizing believers into the body uh, of Christ uh, on the body of the church in the Old Testament. That's what he's doing today. But that ministry will stop. But he will be bringing men and women to Christ. He'll continue his ministry, which has always been one of taking God's creation and restoring it. We're told in Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit hovers over this earth today. And he has ever since the very beginning, and he will continue to do so even after the church is removed from the earth. But, he will have to have an unusual special ministry during this period. And John is now going to tell us what that ministry is going to be. So let's begin with chapter 7 with verse 1. And John says, After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on uh, any tree. After these things... What does he mean after these things? This means after the vision of the sixth seal has ended. And then John is about to now to see something new. The scene now shifts from judgment on the ungodly in chapter six to special protection for the godly here in chapter seven. Now, angels mentioned here. Angels are often associated in scripture with God's judgment. 
And these four angels are given power over the elements of nature. Now, understand, Satan has no power over the weather. You know, times we have things planned or there's some special occasion and rain comes or it's a just a cold or ugly day. You know, people have the tendency to say, well, man, you know, Satan brought this lousy weather. Well, understand, Satan does not control the weather. Genesis 8, 22 says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night shall not cease. Understand, God is in control of everything. Satan is powerful, but he has limited power. And whatever power he does, he has to get permission from God. From these angels mentioned here that are strategically placed on the earth, these powerful angels made sure there was no wind that would blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree. Now, the four winds are often associated in Scripture with God's judgment. We see that in Jeremiah chapter 49, 36, Daniel 7, 2, and Hosea 13, 15. Now, during the time of the break described here in chapter seven, judgment is going to be held back by these angels. There's not going to be any wind. There's going to be no breezes, no waves breaking on the shore, no clouds moving across the sky. Everything will be dead still. This is a demonstration of God's miraculous power, because understand the circulation of air is driven by energy from the sun and the earth's rotation. The tremendous powers involved in, 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 in this become especially clear when they're seen in the form of power, uh, powerful hurricanes, blizzards, and tornadoes. Nahum, chapter 1, verse 3, Nahum says, He displays His power in the whirlwind and the storm. The billowing clouds are the dust beneath His, beneath his feet. These winds of the earth make life possible on earth. Through the hydrologic cycle, which is the distribution and circulation of water on and below the Earth's surface and in the atmosphere, transporting waters inland from the ocean to water the Earth. But notice it takes only four angels to stop this cycle. The angels holding back the wind also symbolizes the withholdings of the plague uh, or plagues associated with the pending trumpet judgments in chapter eight that are soon going to be released. Now, let's look at verses two and three. John says, then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So now we have a fifth angel that's giving orders to the other four. He cried with a great voice, John says, indicating that horrible and terrifying judgment is getting ready to hit the earth. So it's necessary that God protects his servants, because if he doesn't seal these servants, they're not going to make it through the great tribulation. But God is going to preserve them during this tribulation, during this day of wrath that's coming to the earth. Jesus mentions this in Matthew 24, verses 21 through 22. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what this mark on their foreheads will be. All we know is they're going to be, there's going to be some kind of a mark. Now, like I said, we have this interlude or this intermission or this break here before the seventh seal is going to be opened in chapter 8. So the two groups mentioned here of people can be, uh, can, uh, so that uh, they're going to hold back this, this, this time or this tribulation so that these Two groups of people can be sealed. Again, one of the Jews and the other Gentiles. And again, Gentiles being 
anybody other than a Jew. The reason for this intermission between the sixth and seventh seal, where we're at right now, is to make sure that these people, the Jews and the Gentiles, are sealed to make it through the Great Tribulation period. They are going to be sealed for service. That's their purpose. They have a work to do. The Lord Jesus made it very clear that they are going to make it through. Let's look at verses 4 through 8. John says, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, and all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Now, in Scripture, a seal is a sign of ownership and protection. And today, God's people are sealed by the Holy Spirit. This is God's mark of ownership and protection. As we abide in Christ, one day he'll take us to heaven. Paul said, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and you're not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Now, the 144,000 Jews will receive the Father's name as their seal. We see this in Revelation 14.1. This seal will protect these chosen Jews from the judgments that will harm the earth and the sea mentioned here in verse two and occur when the first four angels blow their trumpets in chapter eight. The judgments get worse when the horrible locusts are led out of the pit in chapter nine, verses one through four. But it says in chapter nine, verse four, they could only hurt those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. The 144,000 will be protected from these unbelievable demonic judgments and they'll be able to do their work and glorify the Lord. Now, the number 144,000 is important because it signifies perfection and completeness. These 144,000 are all Jews and even their tribes are named here. Look at verse 9. John says, after these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. There will be a great number of Gentiles saved during the great tribulation period. Who will be sealed with their own blood because of their testimony and their own lives is their testimony. They died because they believed in Christ during the great tribulation period. That's their testimony, their life. Our life should be our testimony. The way we live, the way we speak, the, what, the things that we do. You know, people should be able to say there's something, you know, they'll say, oh, there's something weird about that person. You know, there's something strange about that. person. they don't do this. They don't do that. Well, their life should be a testimony to, to a, a faith in Jesus Christ. It says here, John says, these people were standing before the throne and before the Lamb of God, Christ. The throne takes us back to chapters four and five. Remember when they saw one sitting on the throne? It reminds us that God is still sovereign. And even during the darkest times on earth, God is sovereign and he's still in control. Now, 
the thought of the lamb reminds us that Jesus Christ is still savior. Even through the great tribulation period, millions and millions of people will be saved during this time to God's glory. And they are standing before the throne. Remember the universal invitation is still it was and still is and always will be whosoever will. Nobody is left out. Nobody can ever say they, 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 that God sent them to hell or they it, God said whosoever will. Whosoever will come. That was the gospel invitation. And we see here, notice it mentions not a single nation, tribe, people, or tongue is missing. Because there's no partiality with God. He's not a respecter of persons. And here it says, John says, here he saw them standing before God and they were dressed in white robes and they had palm branches in their hands. And this is a symbolic way of telling us that they were both righteous and victorious. So when it's all over, John says, they're seen, they're standing highly exalted by God. God lifted them. God exalted them. God promoted them. They're at a place near his throne. Look at verse 10. And then again, John sees these. He says they're, they're clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. And then verse 10 says, and they're crying out with a loud voice. And they're saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. So these Christians were praising God for their salvation. As we should praise God for our salvation, that God chose us from the foundation of the world. That God saved us in spite of us. It seems like every one of them here pays the price of death for their faith. And during the tribulation period, uh, that's pretty much the way it's going to go. And yet they thanked God for their salvation. They left the earthly life in some of the most horrible ways possible. Death that only Satan could invent. Torture, starvation, thirst, imprisonment, cruelty, scorching heat, locust-type demons, asteroid or meteor showers, the sword. Many perish this way. And when you go back to some of these uh, third world countries and and. You know, you see it, especially, you know, in, in the Middle East right now, you see it in Afghanistan and, and, you know, Iran and Iraq. These 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 the, the folks that believe in Jesus Christ, you see them being killed. You see them being beheaded. You see them being tortured for their faith in Jesus Christ. Thank God we don't see that in our country yet. I don't know that we will, but we, we see such a such a hatred for Christ, a hatred for Christianity and the word of God. But these people gave their life for Christ. Jesus said they, you know, and this is what Jesus meant when he said they endured to the end. They endured to the end. But it's all over for them now. They're saved and they're with Jesus Christ and they're thanking God for his grace upon their life. Look at verses 11 and 12. John says, all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Can you imagine? These people one time were despicable, unworthy sinners. But here they are. They're worshiping God now. But look who they're worshiping with. Pure, un, um, pure, 
holy angels in heaven. That's a work of God's grace. It's a work of God's grace that makes the angels even glorify God even more than these, these uh, uh, saved sinners do. These people, like many of us at one time, had turned their backs on God, rejected the gospel, didn't care about God, didn't care about Christ. Maybe some of these never even heard the gospel before. You know, and, and, and now, notice, they're a part of the church. They're part of the church. At one time, they were never a part of the church. They'd missed the rapture, but here they are, a part of the church, standing before the throne with God and Christ. But in the midst of God's wrath and God's judgment during the great tribulation period, think of it, he, 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 you see his mercy here. He gathers them to himself because they recognize the tri- the, that the tribulation period is the wrath of God. And they recognize that what the Bible said is true and what my friends and my family and, and, and my people were telling me, it is true. And they made a choice to live for Christ. In this sense, we need to die for Christ. And so in the midst of all of this, we see the grace of God still reaching down and saving hearts. It's the wonder of God's grace. It's the wonder of his gracious salvation, which angels knew nothing about because they, they, they've ever experienced salvation. But yet they're curious and they're so excited about it. it they're so excited. It causes them to praise and to worship God. The Bible says that, that the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner repents. And even though angels don't experience salvation, they rejoice, as I said, at the salvation of humans. 13 to 14. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? John said to him, sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. These people were saved through faith in Jesus Christ during the great tribulation. Today, in most parts of the world, it's somewhat easy to confess Jesus Christ. But it won't be during the tribulation period, at least the, three, the last half of it, the last three and a half years. These people suffered hunger and thirst. They lacked the basic necessities of life. They suffered the scorching sun, the meteor shower, the locust-like demons, the, the cruelties of the Antichrist and the wars and much more. John didn't recognize them. He said, who are these? If they weren't Old Testament believers, I'm sorry, if they were Old Testament believers or they were the church, John would have recognized them. The elder had to tell John who they were, which suggests they're special people, which they are. He says their robes were white, which speaks of the righteousness of Christ. And it's because Jesus shed his blood for them. The only reason that you and I will ever be able to stand before God is because of what Jesus did. Because of what he did. He paid the penalty for our sins on the cross at Calvary. He died so that you and I might live. And that's true of this group here that John is describing in chapter 7. And it's always been that way. It's always been true that God has only one way of saving mankind, which this world will tell you there's many ways. Don't believe it. It's a lie. There's only one way of saving mankind, and it's by, by faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's only one way. 
Jesus made that clear when he said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. So many say that there's so many ways to God. And, you know, I believe in Mohammed and I believe in Buddha and Krishna and Abraham. Hey, did any of them ever die for your sins? Did any of them ever nail themselves to a, or, or be nailed to a cross? Did any of them shed their blood for you? Did any of them ever resurrect from the grave? No. That's why Jesus has the right to say, I am the way. And we need to understand that. All these other so-called religious leaders, they're still in their grave. They're still in the tomb. Jesus is the only one who's ever resurrected. This is the gospel. How Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The gospel is not God asking you to do something like many other religions do. Oh, you got to do this and you got to do that for the for for the God that you serve. No, The, the gospel isn't God asking you to do something. It's God telling you that he has done something for you. The gospel isn't you giving something to God. The gospel is God giving something to you. Many of the other faith people have to die for their God. Our God died for us. We need to understand that. The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. How do you get it? By faith. That's the only way you can receive a gift. The gospel is what God has done for us. It's what he's given us. It's a gift. It's his gift. That's why in John chapter 1 verse 12 it says, But as many as received him, notice, as many as received him, that is Christ, to them God gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 7, we have redemption through his blood, Christ's blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the richness of his grace. And God has plenty of grace as evidenced here by how he saved those during the great tribulation period. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. He can and will save you if you are willing. You may think you've done all kinds of bad stuff, evil things bad things maybe you have but you know what that's the only kind of people god saves he's not coming after the good he's coming for those who recognize you know what i'm a sinner and i need jesus christ and yet we we've fallen into the category with all of these people who've done all kinds of evil things and bad things we're all of that and more Look at verses 15 through 17. Therefore, they, those that are washed, their robes in the blood, he says, therefore, John says, they are before the throne of God knows and they serve him night and day in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and he will lead them, notice, to living fountains of waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The reason these tribulation believers were allowed to stand before the throne of God is that they were purified and cleansed from their sins by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God on their behalf. 
that made them fit for the presence of God. Nobody will ever be able to stand in the presence of God without Jesus Christ. They were now fit to stand in the presence of God because they were purified and they were cleansed from their sins by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God on their behalf. They were fit for the presence of God. So that it says here in verse 15 that they might know to serve Him day and night. We're going to serve Him day and night. The word serve in verse 15 is from a word that's often used to describe priestly service. They were giving a spiritual service of worship to the Lord. And it says day and night. Day and night is just a way of saying their service was continual because there isn't going to be any day or night. Because it says that the, when, when the new earth and the new heavens come, we won't need a moon, we won't need a sun because the glory of God will be the light. There will be no day or night in God's eternal heaven because the Lord God gives them the light. Where will this service be, be performed? It says here what? In his temple. They're not only there to see, but to serve. Heaven is a place of rest, but it's not a place of laziness and idleness. And the word temple here is not the word used for the temple area in Jerusalem. It's the word for sanctuary. In the earlier tab tabernacle and the later temple, only the priests and the Levites could enter the sanctuary. But now, all believers are priests and can serve in the sanctuary. And the temple here is the divine presence, recognized and enjoyed. They are in the holiest place of the sanctuary. The veil has been removed. They have the very front seats in heaven. Think of that. They're before the throne of God. They're not behind it. They're not off to the side of it. They're right there, front row center. For the best part, where they can look into the face of God. They can watch every expression on his face. They have a place that no money can buy. They have reserved seats in his innermost court. The picture, of God as the, the picture of God as the shepherd of his people is one of the most beloved and common in the Old Testament. And Jesus is pictured as the shepherd of his people in the New Testament. The great shepherd is going to glide, guide his flock to the springs of the water of life and they're not going to be hungry or thirsty anymore. They're not going to be troubled by the sun or the heat anymore. They're not going to be troubled by the temptations and the evils of this world anymore. And it says here that God is going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. Because you see in heaven, there will be no pain, there will be no sorrow, there will be no suffering. These mentioned here made it through the great tribulation period because of the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Christ. But man, you don't have to go through the great tribulation period in order to get to heaven. And God forbid that you wait that long and think you're going to make it through. You can be saved now. Now. Paul said in closing, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful chapter, Lord, and 
Father, again, for the picture of, of your grace in the midst of wrath. Father, your word says that you're not willing that any man should perish, but all should come to repentance. Your word says that you don't you don't rejoice in the death of the wicked. It grieves you. It breaks your heart. And Father, your word tells us that hell wasn't made for man. It was made for Satan and his demons. You provided a way for men not to have to go there. And you never send anybody to hell, God. People choose to go there by rejecting the loving gift of salvation that you provided through your son. The very word of God that will save you, if it's rejected, it will condemn you. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, our prayer is that the Holy Spirit would touch your heart, speak speak to your heart. Open your eyes long enough to see the truth of God's word and understand that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that no man comes to the Father except through me. And that there's only one name whereby man can be saved. The man, Jesus Christ. Don't believe the lies of this world that there are many roads to heaven. Jesus said the road to heaven is very narrow. And very few find it, but it's wide enough for all who want to walk it. Jesus said the road to destruction is very wide, and many, many go there. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship. And if God has spoken to your heart, and he's brought his word to life in your heart, Then as we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way to the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And then when the song is over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.